Welcome to Strength for the Journey from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau. Sometimes we Christians let our humanness get the better of us. We marvel at ourselves and the things that we do. Today, First Pres Executive Director Chris Pan looks at some of the ways we behave in light of God's Word. Good morning. I'm Chris Pan. I'm on staff at the church as Executive Director. Uh, we continue this morning in our Hope Restored sermon series, where we've been walking through verse by verse through the entire Gospel of Mark. And we're looking at how Jesus restores hope to a world in need. And we've reached chapter 13 today, where Jesus has this long teaching interaction with his disciples. And it's a long passage, so we're breaking into two parts, this week and next week. Today we'll be looking at Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. Our sermon title today is, Look, When, Wait, What? And that may... That makes no sense at all to you now, I understand, but hopefully it will make sense by the end of the sermon. As we go through our passage and our sermon today, ask yourself these two questions. What is God saying to me, and what does he want me to do about it? What is God saying to me, what does he want me to do about it? Will you please stand, if you are able, as we read our passage for today, Mark 13, 1 through 13. It is a long passage, so brace yourself. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. As for yourself, beware. For they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, and please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before you now to be transformed. We invite your Holy Spirit to transform us. May we see what you want us to see. May we live lives worthy of the calling we have received. May we rely on the Holy Spirit's provision in our lives. May we endure. We pray this in your powerful name. And all God's people say, Amen. This is a doozy of a passage. Uh, You open up a commentary and the commentary says, This is a doozy of a passage. 
And, uh, you know, I would not have chosen this passage to preach about, but that's the beauty of going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. We don't get to pick and choose. This is the text, and we get to see and grapple with what is Jesus saying here in this hard and difficult text. What does he have to say about hope restored into the world? So we're going to go through this passage section by section. Section one is, look. In the first section of our passage today, Jesus and his disciples are walking out of the temple in Jerusalem. And one of the disciples admires the magnificence of the temple. Look at this amazing temple, he says to Jesus. What large stones, what large buildings. And by all accounts, the temple of Jerusalem in Jesus' time was truly amazing. Here's an artist's rendering. The temple was made of large white stones covered with plates of gold. And all that gold reflected in the sun. The first century historian Josephus described looking at the temple like looking directly at the sun itself. Look at this great building. And Jesus' reply must have shocked the disciples. Because Jesus doesn't say, yeah, that's a great building. Instead, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. Jesus says this whole magnificent building is going to be torn down. And that's exactly what happened 40 years later. In the year 70 AD, when the Roman army conquers Jerusalem and sets fire to the temple, destroying it. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know that the only thing left of the temple is the former Western Wall, which is now known, also known as the Wailing Wall. Here's the picture of what's left of the glorious temple of Jerusalem. The disciples say, look at this temple, and Jesus predicts that it will be destroyed because Jesus isn't impressed by the temple's external beauty. In fact, he's already pronounced judgment on the temple earlier in Mark for its corruption. So if Jesus is not impressed by this magnificent temple, what is he impressed by? What is he looking at? And luckily, we have a very easy and clear answer to this question. Because just last week, Pastor Dan preached about the verses that immediately precede our passage today. Jesus and his disciples in the passage immediately before our passage today, they're in the temple. And Jesus calls his disciples over to him, and he says to them, Look, look at this widow who just put two copper coins in the offering. The disciples say, Look at this fancy building. And Jesus says, Look at this widow and her generosity and her sacrifice and her faithfulness. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus refocuses from the external trappings of religiosity to the internal condition of the heart. Multiple times in Mark, the Pharisees focus on external ceremonial laws and rules, and Jesus focuses on the heart. The disciples marvel at the fancy building, and Jesus focuses on the heart. Jesus marvels at the widow's giving, at the quality and faith in her life. As Pastor Dan preached last week, Jesus praises the widow's all-in faith, her dedication to God, not just at the margins of her life, but at the very core. A few years ago, I was traveling in Milan, Italy, and I had the chance to visit the Cathedral of Milan. It's the fourth largest cathedral in the world, and it took 582 years to build. There's a picture. It can comfortably fit 40,000 people inside. It is the length of one and a half football fields inside. 
It has paintings and stained glass windows and sculptures everywhere. As you can see, it is an absolutely beautiful building. And as we toured around the cathedral, I was surprised to see a roped-off area and a sign that read, This area reserved for worshipers. Inside the cathedral. Isn't the whole cathedral reserved for worshipers? But of course not. The Milan Cathedral now is for tourists. It has a gift shop. Six million tourists visit the Milan Cathedral every year. That's more than 115,000 people a week. They marvel at the building, just like the disciples marveled at the Jerusalem temple. And I thought, you know, I'm a worshiper. I'd like to go into that section and worship. But the guard standing there wouldn't let me in. We had this language barrier because I wanted to say, I'm a worshiper. But the only Italian I know is gelato and tiramisu and ciao bella. And so, you know, I don't understand why he didn't recognize me as a worshiper. But I wanted to worship there, not just look at the beautiful building. And so we found out when the next service time would be. It's Catholic. They have daily mass. And so we waited until the next mass time, and then we went in. And they didn't hold mass in the main cathedral itself. We followed the priest and some people as they proceeded along to the side of the cathedral, and then we went up this small flight of stairs into this tiny little chapel inside the cathedral itself with less than 10 rows of pews. As we participated in Mass, I took this picture to remind myself of the contrast. As you can see, there were seven people in that chapel for Mass. In a cathedral that was built to accommodate 40,000 people at once. In a building that gets 115,000 visitors a week. My initial thought was, isn't this tragic? Doesn't the external beauty of the Milan Cathedral seem so much sadder and more tragic when there are only seven people worshiping the Almighty God inside and 115,000 outside looking at the architecture. And then I realized my mistake, how that I got suckered in just like the disciples. Because Jesus doesn't look at the quantity of money that the widow gives. He doesn't look at the quantity of stones, and he doesn't look at the quantity of people. Jesus is impressed and focuses on the quality of the heart. And I look at that picture now, and I am amazed by its beauty, by those seven faithful people. This remnant testifying to God's goodness in a dry and barren land. Because there's nothing more faithful than being one of seven people worshiping in a building built for 40,000. Those seven people, I think Jesus is impressed and loves their heart and sees them. He's not impressed by the beautiful building, but he sees those worshipers. We have a beautiful campus here, and we're working on opening a campus in Kaka'ako. And this passage is a reminder to us that 2,000 years ago, Jesus wasn't impressed by the fancy building. And 2,000 years later, he still isn't. Jesus is impressed by the authenticity of our worship, by the depth of our faith, by the selflessness of our love for each other and for our community. That's part one, look. Part two, when. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. And immediately the disciples want to know when. In verse 4, they ask a perfectly reasonable question. Because they're not just impressed by the fancy building, they're concerned with their calendar. If the temple's going to be destroyed, they want to know when so they can get out of there. 
And I think we share the disciples' fascination with predicting the future, with asking when. Since Jesus' time, people have been predicting when the second coming and end of the world will happen, literally every year for 2,000 years. Are you familiar with the name Harold's Camping? Harold Camping predicted that Jesus Christ was going to return and that the world would end on September 6, 1994. When that day came and went, he revised his prediction to September 29, 1994. Then, October 2, 1994. Then, March 31, 1995. Then he bought himself some time and predicted some, a date 16 years into the future. He predicted it would be on May 21, 2011. That date came and went, so we revised it to October 21, 2011. Over the course of that time, Harold Camping received more than $80 million in donations to his religious organization. If it is not obvious to you, Harold Camping was wrong. Each and every time, we are all still here. Later on in Mark 13, Jesus himself says that no one but God the Father knows when the second coming will be. Jesus himself doesn't know. And if Jesus doesn't know, then neither does Harold Camping, or you, or me, or anyone else who shows up to say that they know when. Jesus' answer to the disciples' question about when, he answers by warning them to beware and not be led astray. Near the end of his life, Harold Camping wrote a letter apologizing for the sinfulness of his predictions, acknowledging that all creation and all time was in God's hands. Harold Camping wrote that he was now humbly waiting on God and that he was searching the Bible not to find dates, but to be more faithful in his understanding. If you indulge me for a moment, you know, there's an alternate version of this sermon where I was going to come in and say, you know, I've read a lot about Harold Camping this past week, and I, really, I, I recognize the error in his calculations. You know, he took all the sevens and divided them by threes. And really, he should have taken the threes and divided them by seven. And I will now come and predict to you when the world will end. And that date is January 21st, 2019. Tomorrow. <laughs> Jesus Christ is coming back tomorrow. Write it down. And obviously, I'm kidding about those calculations. But it is entirely possible that Jesus Christ comes back tomorrow. And if he did, what would you do today? How would you live differently today? I probably wouldn't go home and do the laundry this afternoon like I was planning. There's probably a bunch of phone calls that I'd make to people that I love. I'd forgive all these little offenses and grudges that I have and been carrying around. I'd treasure my time with my wife and my kids. I'd get right with God and right with other people. And of course, that's the point, isn't it? I think the attraction of predicting the future is that we don't have to deal with today. There's a prayer in the Book of Common Prayer that says that God has given us the gift of life, and we don't know what tomorrow will bring, but only that the time to serve God is always present that we don't wait for tomorrow, but constantly yield to God today. When Aaliyah was pregnant with our first child, I was a young lawyer working at a fancy Silicon Valley law firm, and I wanted to do a good job. And I was working on these big deals, and nine months into her pregnancy, she called me one day at work and said, it's time. She'd gone into labor, 
And she told me to drive home, pick her up, and bring her to the hospital. So I said, okay, can you wait? Because I've got some things to finish in the office, and I'll be there in an hour or two. And so then I proceeded to go around the office and hand off the projects I was working on and uh, make sure everything was tidy and lined up because I was going to be out of the office for a few days. And of course now, I realized the error in my ways. I realized my mistake. In fact, I realized my mistake as soon as I got home in about two hours to a very pregnant, very in-labor wife. But I thought I had all this extra time, but I didn't. In our passage today, Jesus describes this hardship and struggle as the beginning of the birth pangs, the birth of God's eternal kingdom being born into the world. And you may think that you have time, just like I did, but with birth, the time is now. The time to serve God is always present. We don't wait for tomorrow, but constantly yield to God today. Can you indulge me as I make another prediction like Harold Camping? If I revise my prediction and say, actually, you know, I got it wrong. It's not tomorrow. You know, I should have multiplied all those numbers by 12. The real prediction is that Jesus returns a thousand years from now. January 20th, 3018. And if that's the case, it's still the same question as before. How do we live today? Do we take a deep breath and relax and go back to watching Netflix? Or do we consider, if Jesus isn't coming back for a thousand years, what do I build today that will last until then? What world am I building today that lasts for a thousand years? What relationships, what investments in people and institutions am I making now? What legacy will I leave? Once again, the reality is that only God the Father knows when Jesus is coming back. Jesus doesn't know. You and I don't know. And so we have to live in this beautiful tension that we might have one more day and we might have a thousand more years and every option in between. But how do we today live faithfully and intentionally to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? How do we live with the urgency that it might be one more day, but to leave a legacy if it's a thousand more years? Can we take a moment to pause and reflect and think about these words, to think, how would we live in this way? That's part one, and that's part two. Look and when. Now, part three. Wait, what? There's someone I know who kind of spaces out when I talk to them. And I'll be talking, and it looks like this person's paying attention. But after a while, they'll actually check back in, and they'll say, Wait, what? And I feel like that's the reaction of the disciples in the last part of our passage today. Because they've just recently accompanied Jesus into this big procession into Jerusalem where he's being hailed as Savior and King. And they're wondering, they're having these conversations about who will be the greatest among them. And Jesus starts telling them that they will be handed over to the authorities, beaten in synagogues, family members will betray each other to death. They'll be hated because of Jesus' name. And I imagine the disciples kind of zoned out, still thinking about who's the greatest, looking at how shiny the temple is, planning their calendar, vaguely hearing Jesus talking about being beaten and betrayed and hated, and saying, wait, what? What was that about being beaten and betrayed, about death? 
And I think we react the same way. Wait, what? What you saying, Jesus, about persecution and being hated? I was having dinner with a friend who's not a Christian, and he was joking around about wanting to start his own religion. And we were joking, saying, you know, if you're going to start your own religion, just go get a Ferrari. And then drive the Ferrari around and say, you know, I've started my own religion, and I've got this Ferrari, so it's clearly working out for me. So you should follow me, and then you'll get your own Ferrari. And I actually think that actually sounds like a lot of religion these days, holding up the promise of prosperity. And that's a reasonable way to get people to follow you. In contrast, Jesus says, you know, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and be killed. And I'll rise on the third day, and you should follow me. And that means denying yourself and taking up your cross. You'll get persecuted and beaten, and children, your children will rise up against you and put you to death, and you'll be hated. Follow me. <laughs> Wait, what? Run that by me again? And of course, there are glorious joys to following Jesus. But I love that Jesus is very practical and realistic about the pain and struggle and difficulty in life. Because all of the things that Jesus described here, the beatings, the persecution, the betrayal, family members turning against one another because of the gospel, all those came to pass under the Roman persecution of Christians immediately followed Jesus' death. Children betraying their parents to death, parents betraying their children, those things happened in Rome. And those things still happen today to Christians who live around the world, in Syria and Somalia in China dozens of other countries. Our sermon series is titled Hope Restored, not things that Jesus says that are a bummer. And so where is the hope in this passage? I think there is hope in the line, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus was speaking about how to live in difficult times, how to live when things look bleak and hope is lost. But to have faith in God, that God remains in control and will triumph in the end. Jesus says the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not the one who survives to the end. Because to survive is a matter of existence. To survive is to just keep on breathing and eating and sleeping. What does it mean to endure? To endure is a matter of faith. To endure is to keep on straining and wrestling and holding out and holding on to Jesus. The early church understood that communion with Jesus wasn't just sharing bread and grape juice once a month. Communion with Jesus, communion with Jesus was communion in his sufferings. That the suffering that they endured was in Jesus' footsteps. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, We boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. As Paul points out the provision of the Holy Spirit, I think that's the other place where we can find hope in this passage. Jesus says in verse 11, When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you're going to say, but say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus, prom Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will give them words, that they don't need the Holy Spirit and a long, well-researched, well-crafted speech. 
The Holy Spirit is enough. I try to take this passage to heart and just come up here and let the Holy Spirit give me the words, but I am a man of little faith. (laughs) But if you were here three weeks ago, we had a time of giving praise to God at our last service in 2018. And 32 people across the three services stood up to give God praise for how he came through for them in 2018. None of them knew in advance that there would be time to share. They came to church that morning and they stood up with no notes, no preparation, and spoke and testified about the goodness of God. The Holy Spirit was enough. They didn't need the Holy Spirit and something else. God was enough. And the stories they shared were about enduring, about how God came through for them in difficult times. One of the people who shared was Mike Palchik, who, as you heard in the congregational prayers, passed away this past week. And it warms my heart to think that Mike, a few weeks before his passing, had the opportunity to stand up and testify and say that he was struggling through physical ailments, but he testified to the goodness of God, that he was enduring and God was present, that he had that opportunity to stand in front of the congregation and say that through the power of the Holy Spirit, and now he is in glory in the warm embrace of Jesus. Jesus, in this difficult passage, promises that the Holy Spirit will be present and is enough, that God provides, that God himself is enough. For whatever difficulty we're enduring, God is enough. Not God and a Ferrari, or God and a comfortable retirement savings balance, or God and a boyfriend or girlfriend. Just God. God is enough. We don't need fancy buildings. We don't need to know exactly when the end will be. Our God is a savior and a deliverer, and he is coming back. And God alone is enough. Amen? Amen. Amen. Will you please join me in prayer? Let's take a moment now to just silent reflect, to ask God, what are you saying to me, and what do you want me to do about it? Father God, you are sovereign over us. You are enough for us. May we worship you today and every day that you might give us beyond today. May we endure and may we see you one day in your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen. Will you please stand on their service with one more song. But if you would like after the service to have prayer, there are members of our prayer team in front of the cross, in front of the choir risers. Please come forward. They would love to pray for you in whatever need you might have. But now receive this blessing. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. We live through life's ups and downs with the assurance that God is with us as we wait for Jesus to return. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Kiona Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.11. 
Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download the brand new First Prez app. Watch First Prez sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. If you need more, you can call us at 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you and thank you for listening. Strength for the Journey is copyright 2019 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.